0: God's authority extends only over that which is His, but everything is His. The church is His in a redemptive sense, but everything else is His because He made it. It's a matter of corruption. They
1: don't want it to be true because God is going to get in the way of what they want to do. They don't want there to be a God because they want to be God. They want to be God of their own lives.
0: Brother, we've
1: got a nation that's that's standing on sinking sand, brother, and it's evident all about us. But the good news is there's still a solid rock. His name is Jesus Christ. All those crazy things that our ancestors used to serve, and now in general in the West, we've we've served the living God, but if you go to other nations, they're still serving false gods, and the gospel will go to them, and Jesus will conquer those gods and bring the nations back under his authority.
0: Uh, there is not one square inch In the whole domain of human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, Mine.
2: The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah 1 3. Hi, this is Pastor Jason from Christian Life Church in Waverly, New York. Welcome to Master's Crib a weekly podcast where we interview pastors and leaders about the biblical teaching of authority this program is designed to go alongside a personal bible study aimed towards spiritual growth biblical understanding and a christian worldview thanks for tuning in today on episode 41 we have the connectlies cliff and robert uh, pastors at Grace Community Church in Connecticut. So I thank you guys so much for coming on Master's Crib.
1: Thanks for having
3: us, Jason. Pleasure to be here.
2: So tell me a little bit about the ministry up there at Grace Community Church. How long has that church been established, and when did you guys get involved?
1: We began the church 20 years ago in 2001. In fact, our first Sunday morning service was right before 9-11. Wow. 2001. 2000- one, Wow. So we've been around for 20 years. We started meeting in the backyards of people's homes, and then we moved to a mansion in town, and then we moved to a garage, and then we moved to the middle school, and then we moved to the beautiful facility that has been given to us by Grace Farms Foundation.
2: That is awesome. That is awesome. So there's more than just the church. So you have a, a couple other ministries that, that you guys have going on. Can you just tell us a little bit about those?
1: For the past 40 years, I've been speaking on university campuses around the United States. I was first on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and so it was usually the university chapter that would invite me. And so my wife and I would travel, and when Robert was one, two, and three, and four, and five years of age, we brought him with us. Cool. And uh, we went uh, down the East Coast in the fall and into the Midwest, and then starting in January after Christmas, we would start at UC San Diego and go on up to UC santa barbara and ucla and then up to uc berkeley and stanford and then over to cal state chico and those other schools and then in the later spring we'd be at the university of wisconsin and university of michigan so i've been doing that for 40 years and now it's been a real treat to have robert join me at the texas state university and at uh, university of texas to do the open air dialogue so it's been a blast we just stand up and speak for five minutes and then say that's all we had to say we thought we'd open it up for question-answer, agreement-disagreement, wherever you guys are coming from, and we go for, from two to five hours of dialogue, all back and forth, back and forth dialogue. Wow,
2: that is awesome. That is awesome. So, the end of the day, you're finished with all the things you have going on, which is quite a bit. What is you guys' hope and prayer that was accomplished?
3: Well, everyone shares their faith implicitly, so we want to th- help people think through what does it mean to share your faith Faith explicitly in both deed and word, and how to share your your faith and walk through the logical implications for of a worldview
0: hmm. of
3: how you make sense of reality around you. So, at the end of the day, whether it's uh, with the "Give Me an Answer" ministry uh, through now right now, for, it's on YouTube. Uh, we are seeking to connect and dialogue and discuss with people of all different worldviews and and really think through what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus.
2: Mm. That is absolutely wonderful. So of all of your talks, I'm sure with hundreds of different students all over the place, is there any one in particular that, uh, that you can remember that you, uh, that you, you know, kind of challenged them and, and you had a good conversation with them afterwards or even during?
1: Well, um, Robert and I last week got to uh, debate a wonderfully kind university professor emeritus from up in Canada. And uh, he was a pantheist and really could not accept the idea of a personal God. Mm. But he sort of didn't want to be an atheist, so he insisted that everything is part of God and that God is in everything.
0: Mm.
1: And we began to push him a little bit on why do you believe this what's the evidence that this is true how on earth do you distinguish between justice and injustice right and wrong if everything is part of God and I slap Robert why would you ever say that that's wrong it's just part of God slapping part of God and uh, so we got we began to zoom in a little on that and uh, it was absolutely fascinating Jason to hear this professor finally when we said all right now why can't you accept Christ why can't you accept the idea of a personal God who actually loves you
0: Mm.
1: And he was very honest, and I respected him highly. He said, Robert and Cliff, if if I put my faith in Christ and say that Jesus is the truth, the way to eternal life in heaven, then that means that my mother and father will go to hell because they were died atheists. Wow. And I could not stand that. I could not bear that. Hmm. And I said, well, doctor, I, I, I really appreciate and respect your vulnerability, your honesty. And yes, that is a definite emotional hurdle to jump over in coming to faith in christ and after a little bit of hesitation and quiet we resumed the conversation about what is the evidence that indeed there is the personal god and what's the evidence that jesus christ is reliable Hmm. but he was a very thoughtful man so it was fascinating to hear him come forth and i i said well to tell you the truth doctor you remind me of charles darwin because charles darwin did not walk away from his faith in christ because of evolution He walked away from his faith in Christ because he couldn't believe that his uncle, who was a very kind gentleman, was actually going to go to hell because he rejected Christ. Mm. And then when Darwin's daughter died, he could not believe that there was a loving God who would allow his precious daughter to die. Mm. And I said, Doctor, it sounds to me like you're very similar to Charles Darwin in in your difficulty in coming to faith in Christ.
2: That is awesome. It's awesome that you have you have that ability to, uh, to go out there. I've watched uh, you know, a, a bunch of videos, saw a lot of really cool dialogue, and uh, it's, it's interesting not to see people backing down, but to see that through these very general challenges, and I, I did want to give you credit, um, you, know, you are always, even in debate, very, very kind and very consistent in that, and I do appreciate that. I know others do also. Um, but it's interesting because even though they're not backing down, you can tell just by their demeanor that they've been challenged and now they're starting to think about what they believe because uh, through the conversation that's kind of been brought out of them so I really appreciate that about about your ministry
1: thanks for your encouragement Jason I
0: appreciate yeah. it
2: so uh, let's take a few minutes uh, three of us and, uh, and tear into Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 23 I'm gonna read that out of the English Standard Version it says this They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we're talking about God's authority to reveal. So what is meant here by God's wrath being revealed?
3: That's a great question. I, uh, I've i been reading a little bit of a writer by the name of George MacDonald. Uh, he was a Scottish minister, a theologian. Uh, a lot of people were influenced by him, including C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien and even Mark Twain. But he talks about God's wrath as this consuming fire that uh, is working in our lives to, to really cleanse us of unrighteousness and Part of it is that God didn't send his son Jesus to just die on the cross um, to save us from some of the consequences of our sins. We live with some of the daily consequences mm. of our sins. No, he, he came to save us from death itself. And in that way, we experience God's wrath on this planet right now. I mean, look at a pandemic. Look at a uh, some of the natural evil that goes on. Creation is groaning and, and waiting in expectation for its restoration. Um, that is something that troubles us, I think, this this notion of God's wrath, because uh, so often we seek comfort, and so often we seek a, a way out. Mm. Um, but in these writings that I, I've been reading about, this topic of God's wrath, it, it's it's ultimately for our good and for his glory. Mm. I think that his wrath is
1: inextricably tied to his love. If someone comes into your building right there, Jason, and starts knifing you, if I'm not angry about that, then I really don't love you. So God is righteously indignant Mm. over the way we human beings have hurt each other. In fact, Jason... I think there's some people that possibly have been sinned against more than they might have sinned themselves you'd look at an abused child you look at someone who's been really really worked over by some pretty powerful corrupt people and the the consequences of that sin are so painful so degrading so dehumanizing so ripping apart the image of god the value of a person That to be aghast at God's wrath is really not to understand love. Mm. If I love you, I am deeply concerned about what happens to you. And if you get ripped to shreds and I say, what's for dinner, or let's go to Starbucks, I've got a real problem. I don't think I understand value. I definitely don't understand your value as a human being created in the image of God. So the wrath of God is not some selfish, vindictive loss of temper that God has. Instead, God's wrath is his settled opposition to evil is settled opposition to the way we shred each other as human beings. It happens in divorce, it happens in abused children, it happens in employers ripping off employees or employees ripping off employers. It's shown in politicians being corrupt and evil. It's shown in ministers being sexually abusive of people and milking people for their cash. And we know how that hypocrisy hurts people's faith in God, in Christ. And God is really outraged. In fact, Jesus reserves his most scathing words in the Gospels for the religious hypocrites. Mm. And he's not being uh, very pleasant in his comments. He's warning them that they are in danger of the fire of hell. Mm.
2: When we see the fact that in this passage, God's word says, all, all unrighteousness. When we see all in this passage, what exactly does that mean?
3: I think that goes along with kind of the rest of the book of Romans as far as this notion. It's a fairly democratic idea, really, of all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That um, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life for G- from Jesus Christ. So there's this idea within you know, this letter that Paul wrote of original sin, in some sense, of us having a real problem with evil,
0: Mm. that
3: it's not just something that we can blame others for, that we can put out there as just a systemic issue, but it's within each individual person.
0: Mm.
1: Jason, I hope you realize what a privilege it is for you to have such a great guy like me on your program. That's, that's That's the attitude that Jesus dynamited right out of the water. If I think that sin is somebody else's problem... I am blind to my own sin. And that is a self-righteous arrogance Mm. that Christ attacked and reserved his most harsh words for. Mm. I mean, I love his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went to synagogue to pray. And the Pharisee stands up and says, God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Thanks that I'm a superior moral specimen. And what's so lethal, Jason, is in our culture, that's exactly the attitude. Mm. I'm not a sinner. I've never murdered anybody. I've never raped anybody. I, I've never stolen money out of a bank. I'm a great guy. Mm. No. Unfortunately, on the day of judgment, I am not going to be judged by the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm going to be judged by a holy God. And although I've never murdered, I've hated. Although I've never raped, I've lusted. Although I've never brought a whip down the back of a black slave, I've had subtle racist attitudes as a white American. Mm. So the truth be known, Jason, I am not some great guy that you're having on your program. I'm a wretched sinner in desperate need of the grace of God. Obviously, that's very offensive, what we just talked about. And yet, if you look at the cross of Christ, you you can't go around saying, oh, I see, so Jesus went through the hell of the cross because we need a little improvement. Mm -hmm. No, he went through the hell of the cross because we are totally separated from God and on our way to hell, and Christ died to forgive us and to pour out God's grace upon us. And that's truly good news.
2: So on that note, we see some some words here that we don't typically throw around today uh, when we're speaking about people, ungodliness, unrighteousness. So then we see in this passage, they, they, they. So can you tie that together? Like, who are we talking about? Because if we just say sinners, then we're included, if we say we're righteous, they're unrighteous, then it seems like there's a a line there that confuses people. So when we're seeing they, 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 who are we talking about?
3: I think it's important to have kind of that definition of terms with people. Sin is is missing the mark. Uh, It's being off on your aim of hitting a target. Uh, Just kind of a synopsis. Like We have scriptures starting out with one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That one got broken. Mm-hmm. Then we go to about 613 laws, right, with, with the Jewish the, and, and the nation of Israel. And then we, it kind of shrinks back to one rule um, in the New Testament of love one another. Mm. Now, how do you flesh that out practically? Um, I think it's part of all of these one another's. Bear with one another, love one another, honor one another. And so when we say they, uh, yeah, sometimes it can be really, a, a, I think that's the, the need of the church today is it's, it's becoming less of they, and it's more of how can we really mean it when we say all are welcome? Uh, what does that mean? What does that look like to bring in the they's, the others, uh, the outcast, and, and really show them what it means to love one another?
0: Mm.
1: Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian novelist who exposed the horrors of the death camps in Siberia under the communist regime, was lying on a bed of straw while he was a prisoner in one of those camps. And while he was lying on that bed of straw, he came to the understanding, quote, the line separating good from evil does not run between parties, classes, and countries. Rather, the line separating good from evil runs through every human heart. And when Solzhenitsyn understood, it's not just the czarists, it's not just the communists, it's not just the Leninists. It's not just the Nazis who have a problem with evil. I have a problem with evil. Solzhenitsyn understood, I need a savior. Mm. And he converted and put his faith in Jesus Christ. Wow.
2: That is really amazing. So obviously all scripture was written to a particular audience of that time. And we know that there are implications for us today. We know that uh, you know, God's word does not return to a void. We know all these things were written for our instruction. So, so, so we know that. So are there specific implications in this passage that extend beyond that immediate, immediate audience?
3: Yes, absolutely. Uh, this is a, a very important passage because it speaks to our identity. Um, our being, you know, if you look at Genesis one twenty seven, where God says, "Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and male and female." He created them, so that's part of our identity, our sexuality. So that this is a chapter that speaks to that um, the the sexual um, purpose for what what we were created for, and it, it's very important today, especially to be shrewd in thinking through, okay, what's kind of the cultural war going on versus what does scripture say, and and how do we balance uh, both grace and truth? Hmm. I love the way Paul writes it. Since
1: what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse the only reason a criminal does not find a policeman is because he's running away Mm. the only reason a human being doesn't find god is not because god hasn't left enough evidence the only reason a person doesn't accept christ and follow him as lord is not because there's not enough evidence that christ is reliable It's because we're running away I think that's what Paul's pointing out. God has left more than enough evidence in creation. God has left more than enough evidence in the human experience for any thinking person, any intellectual, or any very plain person who's only going through fifth grade education to see that there's got to be a God, a creator. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about this recently, Jason, when it comes to reason. You realize that if there is no God, what a person is saying is, Their rational mind comes from the Mm. non-rational. If my mind is simply a result of a highly developed monkey's mind, why should I trust my mind to tell me the truth? Mm. Would I trust the thoughts of a monkey?
2: Wow. So, if God's attributes, his invisible attributes, have clearly been seen then isn't that kind of a contradiction in Scripture that it says that they are seen?
3: Hum- humanity is continually suppressing uh, what has been revealed by God. Mm. Uh, we, we love the darkness because our deeds are evil, and so we seek to hide, not uh, to run away. And, and that happened right from the beginning in the garden. Mm.
0: Um,
3: and, and it's carried out today in, in very subtle and... Uh, ever-changing ways, Um, but I think that that points to a God who has absolute power Mm. in creating the world, but also ordered power. What do I mean by that? Ordered power in the sense that he stepped into time and space as a human being, limiting his power to become like us, to, to communicate, to reveal who God is. And in so doing, he also limits his power and gives us freedom. And we have abused that freedom. We have abused that ability to choose, ability to glorify God, and instead just run after our own ways.
1: Mm. I love the phrase uh, that Paul uses here people suppress the truth by their wickedness. Whenever anybody says to me, I'm a totally objective, totally open minded person. I think Paul would say, ah, I'm sorry, that's not quite accurate. Because all of us have an agenda, a partial agenda. And that agenda is, my will be done. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: What I want, I want deeply. So please don't get in my way. Please don't tell me I'm wrong. I want to do it my way. Mm -hmm. In other words, I think I know what the theme song of hell will be. I did it my way. So, because of that innate drive, which the Bible would call a sinful nature, or Dallas Willard, the USC philosophy professor, would call a readiness to sin factor, we have a natural bias against God, Mm. because God intimidates our drive for autonomy and for independence. And therefore, it's crucial to try and be humble and acknowledge, yes, I do have some sin, I do have some pride, I do have some... Innate desires to run away from God. I mean, think about it. I don't like the idea that God's all-knowing, because that means there's nothing I can do in secret. Well, that offends me. It means he sees into every nook and cranny of my life, and that's horribly embarrassing, Jason. I'm very grateful, Jason, that you don't know everything about all my motives, all my fantasies. I mean, if that was up on the screen right now, all of Cliff's motives and all of his fantasies, I would be one embarrassed pup. So there's a natural bias against God because of this, what the Bible calls a sinful nature, meaning by that we suppress the truth because we like to redefine the truth and we don't want to be embarrassed by being exposed by the truth. Hmm. I think that's part of what Paul is getting at here.
2: Look for just a minute at some of the cultural implications, as we know there are in every passage. Um, I know you guys are very familiar with uh, talking with atheists. Why is it that the atheist can say with certainty that there is no God? Or can they?
3: That's a great that's a great question. I think that so often they they are really wrestling with okay, how do I give evidence for absence of God? Where is the explanatory power of that worldview of atheism? And I have heard all sorts of verbal gymnastics, because so often the atheist position is constantly borrowing moral moral terms, moral languages, like you should not do that, you ought to do this. They have some type of, of moral stance uh, affirming the value of each individual, but they, they kind of really just have their feet up in the air when it comes to where does ultimate moral authority come from. Um, And I think that's one of the pushing points for them is where does the worth of an individual come from? Um, Is it just the individual? Is it those in power? Is it uh, a cultural fad? Mm. Or is there a creator outside of all human cultures that determines, no, this person has intrinsic worth that is within them. Mm.
1: Many of the atheists that I have spoken to, when they're honest with themselves and with me, have to acknowledge that they're not really searching after God because God is intimidating. Instead, moral relativism is incredibly attractive. It means I write the rules. Whatever I say is right is right. Whatever I say is wrong is wrong, and if it changes tomorrow, if it changes next week, if it changes next year, that's cool, because it's all relative. And then they'll use ridiculous examples like, oh, so you guys think there are moral absolutes. Well, let me give you a a situation, Cliff. Airplane goes down. Raft is out there. Raft can hold four people. There are five people in the water. How do you decide who's going to drown and which four you're going to put in the raft?" All right, that's a difficult ethical question, obviously. But the reason it's a difficult ethical question is because human life has innate value. If human life was trash, if human life was a cosmic accident, there would be no moral dilemma. Just let whoever drown, drown. Mm. Let the weakest drown. Let the ugliest drown. Let the least influential drown. Let the least persuasive individual drown. Mm. The whole reason that that example provides an ethical dilemma is because down deep we understand all human beings have innate value. Mm. So this whole issue of morality is crucial when it comes to atheism.
2: Absolutely.
1: One of the reasons that I'm convinced that Jesus Christ is the truth is because when you listen to people explain the, quote, better alternative to Christ, When you ask them, what is the evidence that your alternative to Jesus Christ is a better option for you to put your faith in? The answers to that question are scary. Mm -hmm. Oh, I put my faith in myself. Okay, fine. Well, what's the evidence that you are reliable? The evidence is, regarding me, that I'm a very fickle, finite, unreliable person too frequently. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the historical record of Christ in the Gospels, about how he lived, taught, died, and rose from the dead... The overwhelming evidence is he is reliable in a way that I am not. Oh, I put my faith in money. Okay, fine. So make a lot of money. But listen to this very, very wealthy scientist who blew God off and said, I just believe in science. But then when he was older, his adult children began to embrace some very destructive lifestyle habits. He tried to persuade them to change their mind rationally. They refused to. And suddenly he began to realize as he examined his life, the most important thing in my life is not science. The most important thing in my life is my children. It's the relationships I have with my family. And his whole view of reality is simply being matter and energy that has to be scientifically analyzed and verified. His whole view that the real purpose of life was to amass wealth were shattered because suddenly he began to experience and realize, gosh, what's far more important than science and money is my relationships with my precious children, and Mm. they're destroying themselves, and I am so in angst and in pain Mm. to watch them go down these destructive paths. Now I'm beginning to realize what is really significant in life, Mm. and that's exactly what Jesus said, that life is all about loving God with your heart, soul, mind,
3: and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. Mm. I think a lot of these debates are set up to, uh, for one side to give evidence, and then for there to to be counter evidence given. But so often, when it comes down to the theism versus atheism debate, the atheist is usually dodging or av- averting counter evidence. They don't mm-hmm. give any. Instead, they make assertions and declarations that no, that that doesn't count as any type of evidence for the reliability of the Christian worldview.
0: Hmm.
3: What do I mean by that? Well, so often we go at morality. The Gospels very clearly, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, give ethical principles, commands. But the Gospels also clearly point towards the reality of evil in this world. Hmm. A spiritual realm, the forces of darkness. That our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That that's throughout uh, New Testament scripture, and it's very a- applicable to today
0: mm. when
3: we see the chaos around us. But even more than just a working theory of of good and evil, is the way in which the Christian worldview accommodates and lifts up the individual person as inherently valuable Hmm. the relational aspect of reality around us is continually highlighted and that is where the explanatory power of the christian worldview is so important that it really does matter how i treat other people
0: Hmm.
3: that death is not an illusion my desires are mixed up and how i act on certain desires affects other people Hmm. We are interconnected. I think we're, we're wrestling with that reality now more so than ever with this pandemic
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, of our interconnectedness, of our ethical obligations to one another. I mean, a, a visible reminder is just wearing a mask. Everyone has to wear a mask now.
2: So when we look at this particular passage, and um, again, uh, you know, th- thinking about all of the different you know, open air preaching that you have done Does this particular passage have any influence over how you go about that ministry?
1: Oh, it sure does. I mean, I didn't grow up in an environment that taught me to go out and stand outside on college campuses and start speaking. (laughs) I mean, that thought struck such fear in my heart. It was incredible. But a fascinating man who was a father in the Lord to me named Leighton Ford was speaking, I think it was at the University of Arizona, and he saw one of the Hellfire Brimstone preachers stand up and tell all the students they were going to hell in a handcart, and he said, Cliff, why don't you go out and try and present both the love and the truth of Christ and see what happens? Well, that was 40 years ago that he challenged me to do that. and I haven't stopped since, Mm. and Robert has joined me, and it's been such a treat and a privilege to have Robert with me. So, um, this passage is communicating crystal clearly part of the motivation for us as followers of Christ to share Christ with people, and that is love for people who are headed towards spending eternity separate from God, and Jason, to be honest with you, the I am not looking forward to the time when Christ returns a second time in power and great glory, and I'm going to meet him in the air, and I turn over and look over my shoulder, and look into some of the, the face of someone who I knew, and to have them say to me, Cliff, you knew all this was going to happen, and you didn't have the guts to tell me, and to think that I might have to answer, well, you know, I didn't want to be considered a fanatic. I didn't want to be considered a religious weirdo or a nut job. Mm. Gosh, if you have cancer, and I know about Sloan Kettering or some other fine cancer hospital, and I don't tell you about it, don't give me this gibberish that I love you. Mm. I don't love you. If you have cancer, and I know where you can get the cure, I'm going to tell you if I love you. Well, you and I have a disease that's far worse than cancer. It's sin, and it leads to death and hell. And if I claim to love you and then don't tell you about Christ, let's be real honest. My, quote, love for you, unquote, is really suspect. Mm-hmm. So this passage motivates the socks off of me to communicate Christ to people. How about mm-hmm. you, Robert?
3: Now, this is a passage that really speaks to just the <laughs> the depth of human depravity. Um. Today, in our culture, there's a lot of identity politics going on uh, where these a bunch of terms are thrown out, well, let's say 100 terms of alienation, and maybe 10 of them rise to the surface as having kind of social attention, uh, where they become sort of this sociological and, and, and political phenomena. And it can be right around, say, the abortion and homosexuality issue, or it can be right around the race issue. And so how do we as a church speak God's love and God's truth to those matters? That our identity is not in our sexual inclinations. That our brokenness doesn't have to determine our behavior. Hmm. That there is a truth above that. And the hope of the gospel is that God loves you and accepts you as you are, but by God's grace, he doesn't leave you there. Hmm. That it is a process of real um, work being done in my heart and my desires to become more like Jesus. And uh, that's, you know, the, the theological term, sanctification, that's not a, <laughs> it's not a destination, or that's not an end point in this life, it's, it's a process.
2: So let me throw a curveball in here as a a last question. Give us all a couple Desert Isle books. Maybe each of you just give us a Desert Isle book to help us with uh, maybe learning a little bit about how to communicate uh, some truth in some difficult situations. Some uh, agnostic friends of ours or even atheistic friends of ours ask us some pretty tough questions. Can you just toss us uh, each a, a Desert Isle book that we can read and study a little bit more about this?
1: Sure. Uh, Some of the books that God has used to help me think through the issues that people have fired at me are The Universe Next Door by James Sire, published by University Press. New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable, written by F.F. Bruce, published by University Press. I found the writings of J.P. Moreland, William Lane Craig, to be very, very helpful. Hmm. Craig Blomberg has been very helpful with the reliability of the Gospels, the reliability of the New Testament. Paul Copen has been very good. Some of the books he's written on, is God a Moral Monster? Mm. And my, and it, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me, where he does a great job attacking relativism. So those are some of the tools that have been helpful to me.
3: And a couple for me have been a, a podcast called Bio BioLogos, uh, with Dr. Francis Collins. And uh, his book, Language of God, uh, tells of his journey from atheism to theism and belief in Jesus uh, as a doctor and as someone who helps map out the, the human genome project. Um, it's, a, it's a good blend or a good kind of synopsis of how his faith informs his science.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: another book would be C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Um for me too, the, just the the scope of the human experience and of, of just everything. The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien, uh, in, in just kind of highlighting uh, the the in, in a way the, the book of the Bible that is in nature. That mm-hmm. uh, when we look at creation, we see God's God's uh, handiwork. Uh, so, the Lord of the Rings, in a, in a way too, helps to capture uh, both the imagination and the intellect into thinking about uh there being another world.
2: That's great. So now we have a we have a nice uh a nice selection that uh, that we all have to pick up and, and read so we can be better prepared. So can you guys tell listeners how they can find out more about uh about you both and the uh the ministries you're involved in websites, uh YouTube channels
3: sure so uh as my dad, Cliff, stated, Give Me an Answer is a ministry that has been going for about 40 years, and it's on YouTube and Facebook, I believe, too, but primarily YouTube channel, Instagram. Uh, it's just give, give Me an Answer or Ask Cliff. Um, I'm beginning up a YouTube channel called Pastoral Piper, hmm. and um, Cliff has written a couple of books uh, one called Help Me Believe and the other called Give Me an Answer. So those are, are a few of the ways in which um, we, we seek to do uh, ministry and uh, outreach.
2: Wow, oh, that's great. Well, I feel privileged to have you, uh, have you both here, and I thank you so much for your time. I'm going to be praying for both of your families and, uh, and for your ministries. So thanks for coming on Masters Crib.
3: Thanks so much, Pastor Jason. We really appreciate you having us on. We'll be praying for you. We sure um, will be, brother. Keep up the great work. We'll be praying for you, man.
2: I appreciate that very much.